You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Just first I'll say I'm honored to be here. And when Chris asked me earlier this summer, I was, uh, I was just thankful. Mainly just because of what I do now, I don't get a chance to preach as much as I would like to. Um, quick disclaimer, uh, I preached my first sermon when I was 17. Went on a mission trip with, at the time I was a member at Vineville Baptist Church. Went on a mission trip up to Raven Gap up in Clayton County, Raven County up there. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I was 17 and they'd asked for volunteers or someone be willing to preach. And so I foolishly said I was because when you're 17, you pretty much think you can do anything. And so I got up there, and then they told me when we got up there that I was preaching at this small black church. And that made me a little nervous. And uh, But I figured at least our team would be there. I'd have friendly people. And so I got up there, and I thought I'm doing really good. And if you've ever been into a black church, they're very vocal during the service, and they will let you know how you're doing. And... My thoughts of my excellence sort of tanked when an elderly woman sitting up front said, she just raised her hand and said, Lord, help him, help him, please. (laughs) So I give you permission to uh, cry out to God if you need to to help me up here this day. Uh, Real quick, I saw his announcement about the Holy Land and Man, I had the privilege, someone gifted my wife and I, Carla, a trip to the Holy Land this past March. And, you know, it was one of those things I thought, yeah, that'd be kind of cool to go, but I didn't really think much about it until someone gave it to us and was like, sure, we'll go. And even then, I wasn't really expecting tons. And yet, as Chris just talked about, the impact of walking where Jesus walked, the impact of hearing his word in the place that he spoke it is just incredibly powerful. From the time around the Sea of Galilee to our time in Jerusalem to having communion In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was a life-changing experience for my wife and I. And I would encourage you, man, if you could all figure out how to go on that. And I know for, hey, in today's world and economy, that would be a sacrifice. Man, that is a sacrifice well worth it. Because there is a richness as I read the Word now. And as he's talking, and I can see myself because I've been there. You know, he tells the story of the demons that went into the pigs and ran into the sea. And I've been at that spot, and I can see the hill they ran down into the sea. Man, there's a power in that. And so he's not paying me to plug it, but it is, uh, I would say, it is definitely worth it. Is Chris said, my wife and I, <clears throat> she's a nurse that she works at the medical center and I run our ministry full-time. And we have the chance to do marriage seminars and retreats. We do a lot of marriage coaching with couples. 
And one of the things, especially when they first come to us, one of the first things we ask them, hey, if you could change anything about your marriage right now, what would it be? If you could just change one thing and just, with a snap of the fingers, that be different about your marriage. And the reason we ask that is, you know, we have them fill out, a, they do an assessment and all these other things ahead of time. But that question seems to go to the heart of what the biggest problem in their relationship might be right now. Well, let me ask you that question, but a little differently. In our country right now, in the United States of America, we just celebrated, I have no idea what the anniversary was, July 4th, anybody know that? It's like 246, 7, 8, something like that? 247. Thank you. Um, if you could change one thing in our country right now, what would it be? A lot of issues. If there was one thing about our country, as you think about that, you probably think, going back to what I just said, that, hey, that's the biggest problem we have. In real estate, they always say that the most important factor is location, location, location. Oh, by the way, I will say this. I know this says a lot. My, my brother-in-law is King Kemper. Um, as you notice, he's not here today. So I don't know whether that should be, I should be encouraged by that or discouraged by that. Um, but I think the answer to that question as far as what's the, our biggest problem, if we could change one thing, it would be that we don't see our need for God. We live in a country, and sometimes we get a little insulated because we're down here in the south, still sort of the remnants of the Bible Belt. But man, as I've had opportunity to go around this country, we don't see a need for God in our country. And Psalm 14 sort of talks about that. Before we open scripture, let's pray together. Father God, we come to you right now and we invite you to invade this place. God, where we stand right now, holy ground, promise where two or more are gathered, you're going to be there with them. And so, God, we crave your presence here. Holy Spirit, teach us, challenge us, encourage us. God, let your word come alive to us. God, I pray that I would be your voice, that you would speak through me. That, God, every word I say, every thought I have would be from you. And Father, whatever needs are here, God, encourage us. And it's in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let me invite you, if you have your Bible with you or on your phone or wherever, it drives my wife crazy because I use my phone during church now to use that for Scripture just because it's 
easier to carry. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 14. And here's one of the weird things. As I was reading through Psalms, through, I was going along this summer and praying about God, what do you want to preach about? I read through Psalm 14, and it just struck a note, and then I kept reading. And I got to another Psalm, and I'm thinking, this is just exactly the same thing that I read a little while ago in Psalm 14. And I won't ask you to do it now, but if you look at Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, they're basically the exact same Psalm, one line different. If you look into the Hebrew, you'd see they use different words for God, but essentially it's almost word for word the same. And I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, did somebody mess up here? I mean, I know in the New Testament, we hear stories about Jesus told in different ways in the gospel from different perspectives, but that isn't what this was. It was almost like whoever was copying scripture at the time just made a mistake, and yet obviously they didn't. And so we have these two Psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, that are basically identical. And I think there's a reason for that, and we'll get to that in a minute. Follow with me as we read Psalm 14. I'm reading from the NLT version. It says, only fools say in their heart there is no God. They're corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise. If anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good. Not a single one. Will those who do evil never learn they eat up my people like bread and wouldn't even think of praying to the Lord. Terror will grip them, for God is with those who obey him. The wicked frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord will protect his people. Who will come from Mount Zion to rescue Israel? When the Lord restores his people, Jacob will shout with joy and Israel will rejoice. You know, I said that there's two psalms that are pretty much the same. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And, and I think there's a reason, because God wanted to speak a message that emphasized it twice. You know, if I, we're a big fan of the series The Chosen. Um, my wife and I have really enjoyed it and seeing all three of the seasons so far. And you know, most of us know that the term shalom means it's a greeting. It means peace, holy, really a whole lot more than that. But you often hear him say shalom, shalom. Well, there's a double emphasis there. And that's what we have here with these two psalms. And these psalms are part of a group of psalms that really almost the first half of psalms are. They're psalms of lament. What is lament? And why do we need to lament? Man, lament is such an important principle in Scripture that literally there's a whole book that Jeremiah wrote, Lamentations. It is his lament over Israel. 
Hey, what is lament? It is the dictionary definition. I think it's a good one. It is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And so what we have here in these psalms of lament, as David's writing it, is this passionate expression of his grief over what's going on in Israel. Man, you look at our country today, and we ought to be practicing lament over the condition of our country. Why do we need lament? First of all, lament is proof of our relationship to God. Man, David's speaking out to God because he knows him intimately. You know, for those of you who have children, when they want something or need something, even if they think they want something, may not need it, they're going to let you know. Because they're going to cry out to you. But guess what? They don't really cry out to people that don't belong to them. They're going to be crying out to strangers. Russell Moore wrote a book called Adopted for Life. And in that book, he tells a story of going to one of these orphanages in Russia. And literally, there were hundreds of babies. And he said the thing that struck him most was the absolute silence. And he said the babies didn't cry out for their needs because they didn't have a relationship with anybody. Man, God desires us to express our sorrows and our grief to him. And there could be a lot of things that we lament. It can be things that happen in our own life and our own relationships. But also things he desires us to lament over our country and what's going on here right now. Second, lament is our language for loss. Hey, when we experience loss in life, lament is our language of crying out to God. Many of you know that my wife and I, we lost our oldest son, Zach, when he was 18 after heart surgery. And I think it's no surprise that my wife Carla spent the next year in Psalms. She didn't read anything else in Scripture. Because Psalms gave voice to her lament and her grief. And so lament becomes the language of our sorrow. It's the language of our grief. Not only that, but it's also a solution for silence. And one of the things we do not need to do as a people of God is remain silent. There's too much of that. And I know that in this culture in our country... It's hard to speak out. It's hard to speak up against what we see as sin and injustice. Because we know if we do, we make ourselves a target. And that people will come after us. I've got a good friend who started a church in Portland, Oregon, about five years ago. And if you've ever been to Portland, it is a spiritually challenging and dark place in our country. 
And he's had several families that have come to Christ, they've joined his church, and they've ended up leaving Portland because the pressure on them is so hard. That as they begin to speak out about the things of God, they're constantly attacked and berated. Their kids are attacked in schools. And they just said, we can't handle this here. And so they haven't abandoned their faith, but they just left Portland and moved somewhere else. Lament is also our pathway towards intimacy with God. You know, one of the things we talk about in our marriage seminars is different levels of communication. You look up and you're going to find, some say there's five levels, six. I've seen one that said 12 levels of communication. I guess you can make up as many as you want. But one of the things we know is this, is that in a marriage relationship, if you're going to grow it, and if it's going to become what God really desires it to be, man, you've got to spend time in those deeper levels of communication. Where you're not just giving your daily schedule and, and talking about just sort of the facts. But you begin to share and open up with each other about your deepest fears, your deepest needs. You share with that person something you probably wouldn't share with anybody else in the world. Well, that's what lament does for us in God. Man, as we pour our hearts out to a God who cares about our suffering, as we pour our hearts out to a God who cares about us, it deepens that relationship with him. It draws us tighter and tighter into his embrace. And so there's incredible power in lament. And we see that in these Psalms. And in this case, the lament is a lament over fools. You go back to the first verse. Hey, only fools say in their heart there is no God. I remember growing up that, and my mom quoted from the New Testament, talked about, you know, if I said someone was a fool, she said, don't say that. Don't call somebody a fool. Fool in this term means somebody, it, it goes to their moral core. To someone who either says or acts and lives their life as if there is no God. When the word term we would give to somebody who does not believe that a God exists, we would call them an atheist. Two kinds of atheists. One, there's the ideological atheist who literally has convinced himself that God does not exist. He just believes the whole concept of God is irrational and only crazy people would ever believe in that. Now, there's a few, and it seems to be a growing segment in our culture and society. Sad to say, in teenagers and young adults, especially those that are part of Gen Z, it is double the percentage of any previous generations that would say, hey, I just don't believe there's a God at all. So there's one, the ideological atheist, who says, my brain just doesn't believe that God exists. And then there's probably the one that's much more common, and that's the practical atheist. 
And the practical atheist is the one who just lives their lives as if God doesn't exist. They're not going to come right out and say, hey, I don't believe in God. But the way they conduct themselves, the way they live their lives, that's basically what they're saying. I just don't believe this God exists at all. You know what the crazy thing is? When you look in our culture, and we're a very divided country, maybe more so than we've been in a long time. You know, one of the, I don't know if it's a benefit or more of a curse of age is being able to look at the past and see how things have changed. I mean, it's almost like when you've got a baby and you're with that child every single day, you don't really see the changes where somebody else, man, they haven't seen your child for two weeks and it's like, whoa, this is like a different child here. Because the changes are so much. You know, I'm a child of growing up in the 60s and 70s. And we live in a different country now. We live in a different culture. And what's crazy is so many things that those who don't believe in God, whether by intellectual assent or whether by the actions they live, so many of the things that they say they believe in and want, this push for racial equality, for gender equality, justice for the poor and disenfranchised, environmentalists who are championing saving the world and the environment, saving God's creation, although they wouldn't recognize God as being the creator. What's crazy is when you go back, every one of those things, their root is in Christianity. I mean, one of the reasons Christianity was so radical in the first centuries because it turned belief upside down. What do you mean we treat everybody the same? What do you mean that every individual has value? I mean, we treat women the same as we treat men? Radical ideas in the New Testament times. We live in a culture that wants so much of what Scripture and Christianity teaches, but they want it without God. They want it without Jesus. And so it brings us to where we are today. Now some of you, as we look at that first verse, hey, only fools say they're in their hearts there is no God. My assumption is that if you're here, you're not one of those. And I say my assumption because you never know. But most of us, I'm assuming you're here because you believe there is a God. And yet, before we pat ourselves on the back too quick and think, ah, I'm glad I'm not one of those fools, David goes on down and makes sure we're included in this. And this is where he gets into verses 2 and 3. And I love the version, the message version. I don't look at the message for everything, but in this case, I like the way that he says it. He says, God sticks his head out of heaven. He looks around. He's looking for someone not stupid. 
Just one man, even just one. God expected just one God-ready woman. He comes up empty. A string of zeros, useless, unshepherded sheep, taking turns pretending to be the shepherd. The 99 following their fellows. Paul echoes this later on in the book of Romans. Both in Romans 1 and Romans 3, Paul echoes this same sentiment that David has given us in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, hey, nobody has an excuse to say there is no God. So come the day of judgment, there's nobody that can say, oh, I didn't know you existed. How could we know? I didn't have a Bible. No one ever came and shared the gospel with me. You can't hold me accountable. And yet Paul says that even by virtue of one creation in our own conscience, we know that there is a higher being, a power. And yet what he said was, man, we've rejected that. And instead of worshiping the creator, we've worshiped the created. It's the same lie the Satan fed to Eve. You don't need God. You can be like God. God's just holding out on you. And Satan has gone to that core where we want to be our own God, so to speak, and led us to a place where people just either deny God verbally or at least by the actions of their lives. Paul says this in Romans 3. And this is after Paul said, hey, you people who reject God, he's going to give you over to all these things and sins. And then he goes to three and he says, okay, you people who think you're okay, and he's talking here in chapter two, he's talking to the Jews, chapter three, he gets us, those that are believers in Christ, and he uses that same passage from Psalm 14 and 53. And he says, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so what Paul and the Psalms both do, they speak to the total depravity of sin. And the depravity of sin is not that we're the very worst we can be, but that sin has impacted everything and everything we are. Our spirit, our soul, our mind, our emotions, our sexuality. Paul goes on later in Romans and talks about how evil and twisted sin is, is that it takes something even good, such as God's word and God's law, and it twists that so that people get deceived by thinking, oh, I can just follow the rules. And I'm going to be okay. Paul and the psalmist are saying, sin has absolutely corrupted us. Man, we talk about the idea of lament. And man, it makes sense why we should lament over our country right now.
I mean, you look at the divisiveness, you see the damage that's been caused to individuals and families by the so-called sexual revolution, no-fault divorce and the breakup of the family, a situation where the majority of children born in our country today are born outside of marriage. You have more and more children growing up in single-parent homes, primarily the mother raising them. Man, we ought to lament. Man, we ought to be crying out to God. God, rescue us. God, raise up a generation that would come back to you. That's what Paul would say. Man, all of us are fools. Even those of us who acknowledge God, who acknowledge Jesus Christ, we still live our lives at times as if God didn't exist. Man, you look at the church, and you see the way, I mean, the church is a microcosm of our country in a lot of ways. You still see sexism. You see racism. You see classism. You see in so many ways, even those of us who are in a relationship with God, we still ignore his truth, we ignore his word, and we live as if there is no God. We still act the fool. And so before we just look at those outside the church and try to cast judgment on them, man, we better make sure that we're not living our lives as fools. But the really, really good news is that God suffers fools. Even to the point that Jesus became a fool on our behalf when he hung on the cross. This is not only did Jesus die for all of our individual sins, Jesus became sin on our behalf and became the target of God's wrath. Jesus became a fool for us. Man, it's easy when you look in our culture today and you can see what the problem is and ultimately we go back to what we said before. We live in a nation that doesn't even know it needs God. We live in a nation that's been deceived 